Salam and welcome back everybody to our podcast, Unapologetic, The Third Narrative. Our authentic and original initiative in light of the war in Israel and Gaza. A platform where we will share our identities, views and experience from the ground. Amira. been a month it has been a month it's been too long not too too long it's not just not just for a podcast i haven't seen you I, in a month i know that's what i mean <laughs> um so i'd like to tell you welcome back and to you too you also been gone uh we're both actually have been uh, gone in the past a few weeks yeah we we did we started this podcast this initiative um in light of the war and i think no one wants nor expected that this war has continued up until now it's day that we're recording this it's day 72 of the war um and i would like to say and of course you agree that we are so proud that we're continuing our work in in peace and bridging people together creating dialogue creating the third narrative and highlighting it but i think it's also important to we do other things so what have we been up to Yeah, and like you said, we've been working on our third narrative within the podcast, but also in general, talking about our own um, you know, doing our own work uh and advocacy, uh, especially since the war started. So, two weeks ago, I was in the uh, Ecolent uh, International School in uh, Geneva where I uh, went and spoke to the students about uh, the conflict about the war, uh about the third narrative. Yeah. about um you know what's happening and what's our uh view as peace activists for what do we expect uh the help from the international community and mm-hmm. uh, you know you're talking about a school that has i think 135 nationalities wow and uh another side uh, note that uh, it was a highlight for my trip is that i actually met Uh, the personal bodyguard of Nelson Mandela. You did tell me, but you didn't tell I me didn't tell details the... <laughs> about <laughs> this meeting. Honestly, probably like something I will remember for life. Wow. Uh, it, it was that powerful. Um, he was his uh, bodyguard during the, while he was the prime minister um, or president. And um, he actually, I was also in jail. as well he was also wow, okay. imprisoned as a as a as a political activist and i want to show sh- share one tiny little story uh because it, it reflects on everything we talked about share away here. share away that's what we're here for so uh Nelson mandela what he did when he resumed when he took office i mean one tiny little side note is that he was only in office once because he believed that staying in office means corruption You know, a.k.a. for some people that we know in our own politics. Wink, wink. You know, wink, wink to our <laughs> politics in Israel. Um, Not just in Israel. <laughs> yeah, you know, I'm taking it to home. And also, yeah, Israel and the Palestinian Authority both are are known to uh, love to stay in the seat. Um, and so in that government, he actually put both sides into the government. So it was also the opposition and people who were with him in their uh 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 the the uh and the movement against um uh segregation but also it was fractions from uh the previous government people that were actively against them working actively against them and one of the people was actually another bodyguard that bodyguard was from the side of the gov- previous government and this guy was in charge of um torturing chris the bodyguard in jail. Wow. He was the person in charge of uh, um sounds like a very light meeting that you had. Yeah, and like <laughs> you know like he tells me that he talked to Mandela about it and how Oof. difficult it is for him to be with someone from uh you know the other side and someone who was actively uh torturing him. <laughs> and uh you know obviously Mandela was trying to bring people together and to break the barriers. And in fact, uh Chris told me that uh one day out of the blue him and the other bodyguard were sitting down and the other bodyguard just looks at him and was like i just hope that a day will come where you can actually forgive me wow and he decided to forgive him so that bodyguard took chris to the church and uh, there is a very symbolic uh, christian act where you wash someone's feet so that bodyguard uh, sat chris down took off his shoes and washed his feet And then Chris did the same. He told him that I want to do the same and I'll wash your feet. 
and uh, as a sign of uh, forgiveness. So, you know, you hear that, <laughs> and then you, s you say to yourself, they're not better than we are, you know? If they can do it, why can't we? If they were able to break away from the violence that tormented their lives, someone is looking at a person who was in charge of torturing you in jail, mm -hmm. and you're able to forgive. That's the biggest lesson I've taken from that trip, honestly. And it will be with me for life. What about you, Amira? You had a, a hectic period as well. What I was in Geneva. Me? And you were I, doing your own work. Yeah, I spent two weeks in London touring around with an organization. An NG, it's a British educational charity fund called Solutions Not Sides. Um, and what it does, it does many, many things for it does many, many things for young leaders, um, amongst which is that it exposes them to Palestinians and Israelis through tours. So um, I went for two weeks alongside an Israeli counterpart, and we toured around schools where we would have an, a, a session where we shared our personal stories, me as a Palestinian and the other person as, a, as an Israeli, and we delved deep into identities, whether that means Palestinian Israeli or that means Middle Eastern Israeli or and others with different backgrounds. And and answer all sorts of questions for students that are 13 plus, like 13 to 18, 19. Um, and it was, first of all, like removing yourself from a, from a conflict zone in a, in a, like from a, from a war zone, it's not just a conflict zone anymore. It, it's currently an active violent war zone, um, was very traumatizing. Uh, you realize how, how uh, much of a big toll the current situation and years of years of conflict and now months of uh, of war have an effect on you where each and every like boom car or motorcycle going by you think it's a siren or you you think that something is going to happen um and the questions that i was asked oh, oh my god the questions that i was asked now the questions that i was asked were obviously very simplified or very extreme, like going from one extreme to another because they're being asked by one people that are not from from the from this conflict area, whether they're Israeli or Palestinian. There were there were, um, but they're not currently living here. Mm -hmm. um, and two are younger, like uh, are are not like they're like they're teenagers from thirteen to eighteen, like I said. And it was very nice. Sometimes it was very we had like I had a lot of stubborn questions that we had to and difficult ones. Um, and other times it was very inspiring to see to see people like um, we had a young Muslim uh, Muslim boy. His name is Yasser. And he stood up like after a very like difficult conversation and him being a little bit like stubborn in his in his views, which he didn't move on his views, uh, but he was exposed to to more views. And he stood up and he apologized. He was wow. like, not for what he's doing, but he was like, I'm just so sorry that you too have to go through what you're going through and that we are making it harder here, like in the UK, that we're making it harder for for you and it, it really put like i was i don't cry easily and i felt like i had tears in my eyes and other people like actually like i'm simplifying his message but he delivered it so beautifully wow. and it shows you that actually listening to people from the conflict how much it changes how much it makes you feel uh the people behind the slogans behind the uh the percentages and the statistics and the flags so um that was very nice how was your experience in the airport Oh, um, <laughs> well, before the airport, I would say one thing is that I've noticed and because I usually don't uh, meet with uh, high schoolers. Yeah. It was one of the few times that I did and it was uh, 17, 18 year olds. Yeah. But in general, I've noticed that with the high schoolers. In general, there is a bit more. The questions are more because they want to learn. Yeah. And they want to know. And there's more eagerness. They're still like a sponge. They're still yeah. absorbing. Yeah, yeah, They're yeah, still yeah. taking in. They're still wanting to learn. With college students, Ugh. it's more, I want to ask a question in a way to prove you wrong. Yeah. It's uh, a debate. It turns into debate. Yeah, and to show you that I'm smarter than you are. And, and I will I know. give you that one question that will spin your head. And I'm going to put you on the spot like... Um, 
you see that uh, uh, these attempts more. It's not like, you know, obviously it's not everyone, but you see a bit more of these attempts to try to, you know, put you on the spot and things like this, not for the sake of knowing, mm -hmm. but for the sake of arguing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, no, it's really easier. Not easier. It's more hopeful to talk to young future leaders um, because we see, especially in the UK, um, the aspirations, the the, pol the politicians that come up, the activists that come out of the UK, not even activists, just the outspoken youth that comes out of the UK and a lot of knowledgeable youth uh, from the UK. So to, to talk to, to be able to have the opportunity to talk to them when they're still forming that mold that becomes so stubborn when they're in university age, what was, was great, was great. Like, I think it was an, an amazing experience. Well, you know, I'll be, you know, uh, we've had you and me a couple of, uh, uh, suggestions and a couple of, uh, requests to go and visit in some universities in the future. Yeah. So I'm looking forward to it. I mean, I, I cannot wait uh, to talk to the to the students like I don't take it as a bad thing at all uh, but it's important to bring our narrative our third narrative to break some stereotypes you know yeah. to put things that they might have never expected before mm -hmm. about life in Israel and Palestine yeah airport <laughs> um, how Amira, did it feel to be a security threat <laughs> that was the first okay so it's important to uh, to put things in perspective right okay. uh, on every Israeli passport uh, once you get your uh, ticket, they put you a sticker uh, right at the entrance. They yeah. they sticker your uh, passport and you have a number between one and six. They actually changed it. I know. Did you notice? I did notice. It's from one to seven. Yep, I did notice. It used to be one to six. and now <laughs> No, it's... no, no. It's one to seven. It used to be one to seven. It used to be one to six, I thought. One to seven. Really? I yeah. thought six was the highest. No? Six was the highest because seven is a terrorist. Oh, okay. <laughs> well, you know what I mean. One to six passing through, okay? Not uh, not allowed. Um, but I always was on three out of six, which is basically they open only my luggage, mm -hmm. uh, my uh, my carry-on, which is fine. I always chat to the guy and, like, ask about his family, like, you know, stuff like this, just to pass the time. Um, and, <laughs> I mean, it's just who I am. I, 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 I cannot be... No, no, no. I don't know what you're saying. Guy, and... It's his job. Yeah, yeah, like, yeah. You know, I know that he's just doing it because it's his job. And to be completely also like fair, the two people who were, um, you know, brought to the extra security were Jews. Mm -hmm. um, but it was the three of us were all single male traveling alone. Yeah, okay. Um, that was a pro profile. Yeah, it was definitely a profile, but it wasn't only just Arab profile. Mm -hmm. Like it was also Jews who were stuck with me. But it was the first time I've ever been taken to the to the machine where they scan your body and everything. Oh, really? They take your, like I took my shoes off and I'm like, what's going on? Like, I know that I finished with the suitcase and with the carry-on and it's done. He's like, yeah, we kind of like increased the level of security to everyone since the war. So I was like, oh. We ranked you up. I was like, I got upgraded. <laughs> <laughs> I'm getting new experiences. So, you know, it's just going through the machine, taking my shoes off and that's it. And on the way back, um, it was also like an extra security check for El Al flight. Yeah. Um, and there they were asked me to go downstairs, which was the first time I go to a downstairs of the airport. Mm -hmm. Like God knows what happens there. Right. <laughs> but it was also very chill, very like two seconds, just like open my backpack, checking everything. And they didn't even ask me too many like questions almost at all. Oh, where were you? What were you doing? Oh, that's very amazing. That's great work. And that's it. Mm -hmm. Like they were, because I'm always nice to them. I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I never got bad um, responses when I was nice to security people, to be honest. What about you? So if I had extra security, <laughs> how did you get out of the country? So in. Um, you used to be sick, Samira. I, let me know. tell my story. Let me tell my story. So usually, usually in normal circumstances, uh, removed from the war and removed from uh, from the current situation that we're in, um, like Ibrahim said, the the um, the natural thing was the natural metric system was like uh, the natural system. Sorry, was from one till till seven, and I always get a six. <laughs> so seven is a, seven is a high risk terrorist. Seven, you're not I always flying. get it. I always get a six, <laughs> no matter where I'm flying to, who I'm flying with. I always get a six. Um, so this is my usual interaction with the airport. I go in, I give them my passport. They look at me, they smile, they see Jerusalem. Then they, they look at the code that they understand that I don't understand. And they look and there's like one second and they leave and I don't see them for half an hour, at least. Um, 
And this time there was the same thing. And I was expecting actually like very, very hard and harsh uh, security measures. On my way out, it was the usual. Like everything that you explained, the x-ray machine, that's each and every time I fly. Every time I fly, my, first time. my entire luggage is searched. Um, I'm x-rayed. I, I could take my shoes off. Sometimes I'm, I'm even like body checked. Like that's each and every time. Um, um, but this time they didn't ask a lot of questions. Like usually, where's your family from? Where are you? Like usually I get interrogated. On the way out, I was not. On my way back, <laughs> on my way back, every I wasn't allowed to have a carry-on. They like they like they kind of told me like first they were like, would you like to check in your carry-on? And I was like, if it's free. And I was like, we'll make it free. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> and I was like, oh, so I, like she basically entailed like. Like, uh, give me your luggage, yeah, which is so, no complaints. So, right? me, no complaints, like, take my luggage, um, because I know that they're gonna go through everything. So, I was right. like, it'll be easier for me, just take my luggage. Um, and every single, every single like bag I had, even my small pouch was tagged. Oh, everything, wow. everything, like, you know, how your your bat your suitcase is tagged with the roll thingy yep, that it's been opened. And so, my purse, my backpack, and my like fanny pack thing, all of them were tagged separately. And uh, I wait for like a long time when they check my when they check my passport, and then I'm let let go. And I was like, wow, that was easy. But why did they tag my bags? Like I don't understand. And then, then I start like there, there's the call for my flight, and I stand in line. And then I see the same person that took my passport, and they were like, hi, Amira, we would like to see you in a separate room. <laughs> of course. Then they take me to a separate room. And they were very nice, I have to say. Like like you said, they're just doing their job. Um, um, and they go through all my shit. And then she asks me for my phone. And I'm like, I'm gonna make noise if you ask me to open my phone in my head. And then I was like, what do you, like I told her, what do you need my phone for? And she was like, J just, just like bring it here. And then she measures it. Interesting. That's the first, that's the first to me. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I would not be okay with having them open my phone i can tell you that much like i'll stay I here know i know people that that go through that yeah 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 and yeah. and i know people who refused yeah. and they I were would fine refuse. actually at the end because yeah it's, it's it's your right as a citizen yeah i would refuse but i found it very weird that she measured my phone That's like if, if anyone knows why <laughs> like give uh... us the answers guys <laughs> anybody work for el al security <laughs> who's listening to this podcast Give us the answers. And she, it took like a millisecond. I put my phone and she took and, and then I took it back. We have a mutual friend who uh, worked in the past. Yeah, that's true. In the security yes, yes. in Elal. We're going to have to ask him. And the <laughs> next episode, guys, we'll give you the answer. We'll we give promise. you the answer. So now we're back talking about students that have asked us many, many questions. It, bring us, it brings us to a lot of listeners that have asked so many questions. So many questions. Um, and we tried to convey to put like there were many questions that were asked multiple times so we tried to to catch the the most frequently asked questions repeatedly and uh, to also try and separate them in a way that will be kind of like uh, a chronological order that would make sense to a listener not have like random questions popping up so first question is what made you shift your way of thinking to a peaceful mindset so I have, I just, a lot of the questions, like I know a lot of the questions were asked or let's say like 99% of the questions were asked with like pure intent, but a lot of them were asked in a way that was very Condescending like, in a way. Yes. Condescending of, and in a snarky, witty way. Um, so I think it's important for, because not everybody would have understood what she meant after hearing the, the you saying the question the first time. So let's again, say the question again. again because it's important to highlight what triggers us. Yeah. Because some of the listeners would not even like pick that up. Yeah. So Ibrahim, what made you as a Palestinian shift your way of thinking to a peaceful mindset. Oh, uh, wallahi, before I wasn't and now I am, you know, like this is, this is it. It's like, it's like the backhanded compliment that we get on our, on our comment section, which is, wow, first time I hear a Palestinian making sense. Yeah. A peaceful Palestinian. Wow. <laughs> like, that is not a compliment. <laughs> that is not a compliment. We're not the only ones. I first of all, I think it's important to say it like that. We're not a sole voice for anyone who's expecting that me and Amira are coming out of, you know, um, 
out of nowhere and bringing these ideas that don't exist within the Palestinian uh, society, I'm sorry, um, it's not the it's not the case. Uh, we're not unique in any sense in that in, in that way at all. Uh, we have other friends, colleagues, people who are working uh, on this conflict and have been working forever. And uh, our Palestinian friends were putting also their selves on the line and you know putting themselves at risk at times and speaking out. And the first one that we'll bring on the podcast will be probably next week. So tune in for that. Yeah. So we'll have somebody who's uh, born and raised in the West Bank who'll share his experience and how he found the way to uh, become <laughs> A peaceful. peaceful mindset. Like, um, but I think we are unique in the sense of we know that it's extremely dangerous for Palestinians specifically um, to um, to to speak up like. They might yeah. like this might be true, like have a shift of mindset that they were anti-Israel, like bring the state down. And then something happened in their lives that made them shift to a peaceful mindset. We're not saying that that doesn't exist. That does exist. But to expect that this is that that's the norm, that norm, Palestinians yeah. are these monsters and something or that has they shift. Yeah. yeah. I was um, raised with my mom who like, you know, uh, raised me just on humanity mm-hmm. and accepting people as people. She never wanted us to even differentiate religions. Yeah. As a little kid, I had no idea the difference between Muslims and Christians. Wow. It's to that extent. Uh, my mom like was very adamant about it. You didn't see religion. I did not see religion <laughs> at, at all. And um, you know, I even like one time, my mom, uh, my be- my cousin asked me uh, in first grade, second grade, who's your best friend? And I'm like, uh, his name is Majd Bshara at that time. And Bshara is Besora, or in in English is uh, Annunciation, yeah. which is the Church of Annunciation, yeah. uh, where Jesus uh, received uh, the message uh, from uh, Gabriel that she'll have a son and all that uh, in Nazareth, my city. <laughs> and uh, you know, like my I told I told that to my cousin. He's like, "Is he Muslim or Christian?" And I'm like, "I don't know." And he has the most Christian name in the entire world, <laughs> right? Bishara, Psola, Annunciation. Like, it's the most Christian. But I had no idea what that is. So I don't know. I've never been raised on hate or anything like that. On the contrary, um, I think it's all this and all my work today, everything comes down to how I was raised and how my mom educated me on, uh, you know, uh, humane values and uh, to respect people and to look at people as all equal mm-hmm. and I'm very thankful to that because that's why I am here today but maybe the shift is is like you said from being silent to being outspoken to being outspoken and here yeah for sure there was a shift but, but and, and it's something that we talked about already yeah. in the first episode and, and and since then that we just had enough and we feel that it's it's now or never and that we need to speak now because of what's going on and we want an end to the entire conflict that we're mm-hmm. We're sick of it. Yeah. And some people don't. Why is this unique? It's because not 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 because people don't want to not because it's an easy risk to take for some. It's an easy risk to take. We're privileged that we in in ways that we the risks that we have taken in coming out and being outspoken are less. They're 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 there, but they're less for others. Like um, for someone to come and talk the way we're talking from the West Bank or from Gaza uh, in during normal circumstances, let alone now, uh, it could lead to uh, threatening their own lives, ruining their professional career, not being like uh, admitted to jobs, their their kids not being admitted to schools, um, not being able to get a loan from a bank. Like they'll be ostracized from society. That's why the voices aren't there. Um, but right now, because you said a lot of people, including me and Ibrahim, are saying like it's now or never. Like our lives are already shitty. So um, we're going to take like a step forward to say how we can change things. And for me, it wasn't an actual shift. Like you said, I was raised um, to... I think it was just a shift to me seeing the difference between a brutal, brutal occupation and to see uh, the presence of democracy in in Israel and to see what we can actually achieve as uh, and I actually had to discover and we'll get to it later on in in different stories, discover what it means to have Israeli citizenship, because in my community, it wasn't something that was talked about. And I had to understand what the difference between that is. I had to understand what the difference between 48 and 67 was. And I think um my shift in mindset was more like you said it was like 
more deciding to devote my career towards this activism. But I didn't, like, I, I didn't change. I'm the exact same. Um, and I think we should shift to a more, to a more serious question that has to do with the current situation. Um, doesn't have to do with peace at all. <laughs> it's, do you believe that Israel does what it can to reduce civilian casualties? Well, I guess the honest answer is unfortunately no. Yeah. And um, we saw that recently. We saw that recently from the reports coming out of, uh, you know, the la- latest three hostages that according to reports uh, uh, were killed from the Israeli attack yeah. um, in Gaza. So, uh, you know, if you are be- being very careful about not hitting uh, casualties, so you're fig- trying to figure out where are people, um, uh, you know, where are innocent uh, civilians are at and try not to hit those areas and all these things. And, you know, if... If the army hit three Israelis, you know, um, how much are they caring for when there is a presence of Palestinian civilians? You know what I mean? Like, And these are like we can acknowledge the element of fear, the element of trauma, the element of uh, like the own soldier fearing their own life. Oh, 100%. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. But the, the in this situation, there was like they the reports show that they uh, ha- raised a white flag wrote SOS on the building, left a message in Hebrew, um, that they shot the first two and then the other, the third was injured, went back in and then was shot again and killed. So I don't, I don't call that like if, I think what's not being highlighted in the media is that if, if these Israelis, so, like Israeli civilians were, um, were, were killed by the IDF accidentally, what about the Palestinian civilians? How like there is no way to differentiate in in midst of of these uh, these circumstances, right? And that's one story that we heard yeah. about because it got published because it's the Israelis. How many stories like that have happened so far to Palestinian innocent people? So we repeat the answer is unfortunately, unfortunately, no. no. We would have hoped it's it's better, but uh, and also it's war. Yeah, war is not nice. It's not kind. War is brutal, and people in times of war, like you say, like you don't know also what happened to that soldier. His cousin might have been killed a day before. Yeah, or on there was October also 7th. a big. There was also a big. Um, I saw a report that talked about the uh, amount of uh, the amount of soldiers that died uh, due to friendly fire. Um, it was also like a. It wasn't a small amount. I don't remember the number. But they they existed because of the fear, because of the uh, everything that we that we talked about. But again, it's not an excuse. It's it's humans and humans. You know, it's hard to judge. And we say that war is ugly, and we we say like you know a word that I hate. I hate war crimes. I hate that phrase. I hate that that word. Like I don't war know a war without. Crime. I don't know a war really? without any crimes. Really, like a war crime. What does that like? What? It's like people talk about you know. Um, uh, not to hit the innocent and things like, well, you know, World War II, <laughs> the innocent were the, the, the major people who were yeah. hit more than anyone else. Um, so these ha- things happen in war. And we, we understand that as, 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 as political analysts and things like that, we understand that. But still, we're humans. We, in the same time, we feel the pain of, of, of knowing that innocent people are dying. That's why we advocate for a peaceful solution to, to end the cycle of violence, to end the the uh, the suffering, the trauma that both Palestinians and Israelis have been going on, that have been living in for for years and generation after generation. Next, let's talk about about Gaza. Do you have friends or family in Gaza? Um, no family in Gaza, but Me too. I but I do have friends in Gaza. Um, friends, colleagues yep. that either don't work in the peace building field that we know for like because we know like we yeah, know some people in the peace and building some in the peace and some building. others like some you know from friends in the peace building and um, yeah uh, since the beginning of the war we were working with one of our very close friends and colleague whose family's uh, in was in Gaza and she was outside. Thankfully, she could uh, she could help and uh, remove them from uh, like uh, help them get out of Gaza. Yeah, uh, you know it was uh, it was not us. It was you know uh, I don't know twenty different people who were yeah. working on the case. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. you know we reached out to all our network. Other people reached out, and till today we don't even know who exactly is the person that put their name on the list to get them out of Gaza. 
But we know that we reached out to everyone that we can. And we continue to because it's not like it's only one. It's not one case. Yeah. We're, we're dealing with another one. I'm, at least I'm dealing with another one right now. Uh, as soon as I landed from Geneva, the next day I had a call with someone from Gaza who uh, it was one of the hardest conversations, honestly, I've ever had. Yeah, um, tell, in tell, that sense. tell us about it. You know, the person with all the difficulties that, were, that Gaza was in, he was trying to build a life. He was trying to build, make a business. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, the business in a, a single night wiped. The dream of building that business, of improving their life, was wiped on October 7th. And that person lost his uh, sister mm-hmm. and her kids, so his nephews, um, in the sixth day of the war. And he was still telling me, like, listen, we have no other option but to live. And the only thing that we want is to live in dignity, to live yeah. in peace. Like, why is nobody letting us also get out of Gaza? Because mm-hmm. we don't want to die here. And we feel that if we stay, we'll die. And, and the other, I remember having this conversation with you and I was talking to to my friend from Gaza, from Khan Yunus. And I told her, like, we're, we're trying to find help. Please send me your information. Tell me, like, your, your kids' names, your name, your, your husband's name. Please let me help help you. And she was like, where are we going to go? She, she asked me, like, okay, you get us out. Where am I supposed to go? Yeah. Not everybody has the answer, you know. Not everybody has the ability to, to also go somewhere else. Mm-hmm. Uh, right now, in Egypt, you are able to stay uh, with a visa for about 45 days. Mm-hmm. But it's, and that's actually a question that came yeah. uh, in, in our um, in our questions from the audience about the role of Egypt. Well, the role of Egypt, and we also were asked about the role of other Arab countries. So if you can like, yeah, talk about and, all of that. you know, specifically Egypt, since it's on the border. Um, one, I think it's important to uh, to emphasize that uh, you know some people say, why doesn't Egypt alone let the the people out? It doesn't work like that. Egypt is in collaboration with Kogat, which is the center for uh, um, communications for the Israeli military in the Palestinian territories. And they provide the approval uh, for the people. So there is a collaboration going on on every single person that comes out of uh, Gaza. And uh, Kogat and the the IDF need to give uh, approval to that. But the problem on the Egyptian side also is that... uh, we're seeing, I don't even know how what, what word to use for it, uh, other than uh, dehumanization of the Gazan people by Egyptians. And taking advantage of the shitty, horrible situation that we're in. By military intelligence who are literally treating people, and I'm sorry to use the word, like cattle. They're asking them for $3,000, quote unquote, per head. $3,000 between three to five um, per person. So even if they wanted and were qualified to get out, where are they going to get the money from? Because by the way, the Egyptians, if you write it on the Egyptian document, you'll be out in two days. You can. But what's happening right now to these people is that they're not being uh, let out. And you talk to one of the intelligence uh, officers and he tells you, sure, and I'll add your family and then they'll say, oh, only part of the family can. We have quota. Like you're playing with people's lives. Yeah. And people are putting everything they ever owned and paying money. And then get ghosted. And then they get ghosted. Um, so, and it's as someone who lived in Egypt, uh, shame on you, really. Like uh, as much as, you know, in that year, I've uh, I've met, you know, countless Egyptians and the amount of passion and love for our people, for our situation and care, at the moment, at the moment, they're empty words. I'm sorry. At the moment, we need real help. And I heard beautiful statements from Egyptian friends in the past, but at the moment, our people in Gaza need action and not your speech of how much you support our people but taking actions to support them because your people are right now taking advantage of them. Where's your stand against that?
another thing that the that Egypt and the Arab world can do is to to put pressure for the entrance of more humanitarian aid to enter Gaza because we hear from our friends that it's it's not enough um not only for two reasons one that yes the quantity that's entering is not enough we're hearing from our friends that the uh that they're standing in line waiting for for bread and water and they don't even give we don't they don't even get that sometimes there's that and two there's Hamas taking that humanitarian aid for itself and selling it selling it to to Gazans I repeat, Hamas selling the humanitarian aid to Gazans. Yep. What, what do you think? I don't. I don't even like. It's like we talked about Egyptians taking advantage of the situation. Then you have Hamas taking advantage of the situation. Like what's going on is whoever has an upper hand, um, whether that's relation to Hamas or not related to Hamas, will do whatever it takes to get that to get that humanitarian aid for their family. Yeah. Um, so it's like armed, armed uh, attacks on the humanitarian aid, taking it and then selling it to other people. Yeah. Now it's not only Hamas doing it anymore yeah. because people are so desperate and realizing there's no it's like looting. ability to. Yeah, 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 they're looting the humanitarian aid because that's the only way that they can get it. Uh huh. It's the situation there is un unimaginable, really, and. That's you know part of the damn reason why we started this because we want to end the whole conflict, and the ones who are paying the price highest than anyone else, specifically in the past twenty years, have been the people of Gaza. Yeah, they've taken the toll, and I feel we're sacrificing them. We're sacrificing them for. I don't even a, know a, what anymore. What a dream of of of, of uh, retaking the land of of what, because we've seen and we talked about it again and again that war hasn't helped us as Palestinians, only reducing land and rights, and in order to improve the situation, negotiations should take place, yeah. and that's the role that we want to, you know, help to push for as much as we can. And we highlighted the bad. Let's let's bring a little bit of let's sprinkle a little bit of hope. We have the the UAE, like we talked about the Arab world. The UAE has established a um, some sort of a ground hospital in El Arish military airport in South Egypt, where it's treating more than a hundred cancer and injured uh, Gazans right now. Um, and of course, we have to say that we. I think like it, it was a. It was like a, a beacon of hope for me to see that it's not just condemnations. It's not just people like um, countries around saying that oh, this conflict must end. This conflict must end. But um, it's something they're they're helping and they're actually being there on the ground, not from afar. And we hope for better and more, you know, initiatives from everyone. Honestly, yeah. whether Arab countries, Muslim countries. MENA countries or European the ones community. in Western. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Remember the last episode when we talked about how everyone in Israeli and Palestinian politics should retire? Yes, <laughs> of course. Um, we, we were asked when and if it is relevant for a peace activist to ever in the point of their career to shift from grassroots and civil society to politics. Yeah, mainly like how can the, you know, the peace activist community, because we're not politicians as yeah. peace activist community. And when we talk as peace activists about solutions, we bring them from analytical point of view a lot of the times that is sometimes um, puts aside the political complexities that exist on the ground. And that's part of the challenge of peace activism, actually, in, in changing the reality when you have uh, extreme far right in Israel, uh, how do you deal with that within the Israeli uh, um, uh, perspective? And also, how do you deal with uh, Hamas and other extreme radical mm -hmm. groups in the Palestinian society? And how do you bring all these equations into your work as someone who's preaching for peace? Yeah. How can we, you know push for peace with the consideration of these elements that I think, exist. I think both are extremely, extremely important. Like one cannot exist without the other um, because you do need diplomats. You do you do need politicians. But at the same time, being a politician isn't something that's relatable, isn't something that speaks to the people. No matter how, I know it does in a way, but at the same time, 
um, civil society is something completely different. I think that both are are extremely important and vital, especially right now. Uh, and when I say that, I am referencing Palestine and I'm referencing Israel as well. But there also should be a link between civil society and diplomats. And that I think we're lacking a little bit, especially in Palestine. I think in Israel, it's like the... There's a push, at least, from yeah, the peace there, activist community. There are protests, yeah. you know, now against the, the continuing of the war, before against the judicial reforms. Mm -hmm. So civil society in Israel have been active, at yeah. least. You're right. Uh, and it's something that we haven't seen enough of in, uh, in the Palestinian society. One case I would uh, bring up is uh, the case of Nizar Banat. Banat, yeah. And for those who don't know, he was, a, um, he was an activist. Yeah. He was an influencer on social media mainly and talking... Which is something you don't see. Not a lot. It's not a wide phenomenon. And he was talking about the corruption of the PA, yeah. something that we've talked about as well. And this is also to highlight how dangerous things is. How dangerous it is. You're absolutely right. Because, you know, for us here, we're speaking. But I know that I'm not going to the West Bank anytime soon. Yeah. Right? Like, I'm to not going to the West Bank back. or Egypt. Or, we... <laughs> or Egypt after this We're today's crossing episode. off one, one at a time. <laughs> one at a time. I mean, but we, you know, some things have to be said. Yeah. It doesn't matter the price. And particularly for this issue, like, Nizar Banat was speaking as an activist. He was talking about the corruption, but he was talking about it in a very eloquent way, too. Mm -hmm. He wasn't shouting at the That's screen. That's the problem. That That's was what the problem. scared them. That he was talking about it not as a like social media troll. He was talking about it in such uh, a diplomatic way that not just the ideas of what he was saying was problematic, but his actual presence of coming up as a new leader or might turn into a new leader was threatening. Absolutely. So what did they do? They imprisoned him. Mm -hmm. And the next morning, they go to his parents and say, well, we're very sorry, but your son... Was imprisoned away. and his situation deterred, deteriorated, excuse me, during uh, overnight and he passed away. He was fine. He wasn't sick. Yeah. I don't, I don't, then they I didn't asked, see any reports of his physical no. or. And then they asked, where is his body? They said, sorry, we already buried it. Why did they bury it? To hide the wounds, to hide the the the, the marks of the mm -hmm. torture he's gone through over that night. I, I get goosebumps about it. Ugh. Honestly, the next morning, I expected it to be Tunisia. Like Tunisia started the Arab Spring with one man and one action, Mohammed Bouaziz in uh, in Tunisia, who set himself on, on fire in front of the government building, and it's as a sign of protest, and it's, it's sparked a whole revolution not only in Tunisia but in the entire Arab world. I expected something like that to happen in 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 the West Bank, to be honest. And I have to say, I am disappointed that it didn't. Mm -hmm. I expected a riot to come out. I expected protests and the PA to be like, I don't know, people storm down the building and, and, and yeah. destroy it, to be honest. And it didn't happen. And yes, there is a disappointment in that regard, that we need to take action. And we're seeing this, and uh, we saw it, uh, and, and now we're experiencing it on the Israeli side with protests and stuff like that, obviously, one of the things and the key elements, and you talked about it a lot in the fourth episode, I believe, about the importance, particularly in the Palestinian side, of strengthening civil society. Mm -hmm. And that's exactly the example of how crucial it is to strengthen civil society in the Palestinian uh, community. Another interesting comment or accusations that we sometimes, it's a mix of things that I'm going to present, is um, people that are saying from, from both sides, um, thank you for standing with us. Thank you for either thank you for standing with Israel. Thank you for being on our side. Thank you for uh, their Israelis. Like we have a lot of people that are trying to claim us, put it, trying to put us <laughs> in a box. Um, whether it's me personally or whether it is this podcast, please like don't don't waste your time. Don't waste your time trying to put us into a box um, because we are here. Our our name is unapologetic because. It insinuates that we are not the traditional voices that you are used to listening to. We're not the traditional 
pro-Israel. We're not the traditional pro-Palestine. Uh, we will criticize both, but we will like have our hands out for both to 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 hold on to because that's what we believe in and that's what we're promoting. Uh, we're promoting coexistence, co-resistance, co-shared uh, 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 shared society. society. Um, we believe in all those things, but we also believe in accountability and taking responsibility, whether that's us or the other side, whatever that side is. Um, and then we have, um, when we share these snippets on Instagram to promote our podcast, basically, um, and to to uh, intrigue people to come and, and listen to the podcast. We have people, like, whenever we criticize Palestine or criticize Israel, we have the, what about this? What about that? What about da 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 um, or provide context, provide yes, context. Yes, the, the provide context. Yeah, one. the provide context. What I have to tell you is you have the responsibility to look for the context. When you hear about a quote of about from a politician from some time in history, it's your responsibility to not take that quote and use it whatever you want. It's your responsibility to go and research it. Same thing here. We have hours and hours amongst uh, of discussion and Social media doesn't work in a way where it's informative. It doesn't. It doesn't. We can't. If we could put this like hours on Instagram, we would. But it doesn't work like that. No one would watch it. It's a promo it's a promotional tool. We yeah. want to bring our voice to as many people as possible. But we have these one minutes video. But like you said, we have hours of context about the whole conflict, especially of one of the questions of somebody who asks us. Uh, that he sees that we um, criticize the Israeli, uh, tend to criticize the Israeli Oof. government. We and just said we're not going to the West Bank. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, <laughs> we ain't going to Egypt. <laughs> like, it's, I think you, know, you, you can hear one video where we talk and we are going to criticize both sides. We're going to, I'm sorry, like if some people don't like it, we will criticize the Israeli government, we will criticize the PA, we'll criticize the international community, on everything that we see that it's legitimate. We're not just gonna toss, you know, just uh, empty uh, 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 slogans in the air against the Israelis or the Palestinians, not at all. But we want accountability and we will talk about accountability. Yeah. We will bring these uh, nuances to the surface because that's the reality and we're not gonna shy away from it and not from anyone nor the Israeli government and neither the Palestinian Authority. They both have responsibility and they both made mistakes as people also. The Palestinian people made mistakes, the Israeli people made mistakes, and we're here to unravel all of the things that got us to where we are. It's not one element, it's not one incident that got us to where we are. It's over 75 years of history and we're trying to touch on all of it and we urge you to read and get you know more and more knowledge as much as you can in order to not just from us like even when you find when you when you find the podcast there's more there is always more and now to go back to our very popular and loved segment terminology um Amongst the many questions that we had, we had some terms that were thrown out there and said, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? Uh, because we're limited with time and we don't want this to drag on, um, I think a good term to talk about is normalization. Now, in one of the episodes, I did say that I don't like this term. Um, I don't like this term because of the negative connotation around it. Not because of what we're actually doing, because a lot of people can say that what we're doing is normalization. Many people don't. I think you should ask what they, what does normalization mean? What does normalization mean? actually mean? Yeah. Exactly. Now, if normalization means normalizing the occupation of the Palestinian people by the state of Israel, then yeah, we're against it, obviously. We talk again and again against the, the Israeli government um, and again, again and again against the occupation, uh, whether that be in the West Bank or in Gaza. Um, so that's why I don't like it. However, um, if it is uh, normalizing ties between Israel and Palestine, yeah, we're all for it. That's what we want. We want a peaceful resolution, a peaceful diplomatic resolution that brings the people together. However, if that resolution or if that sort of peace process is going to be a peace process that is written, signed off by Israel and just given to the Palestinian people as if, okay, here's peace, here's peace um, then no. Because uh, that's not peace. 
that's conditions. Um, and if, if these conditions or if this normalization will result in an erasal of um, our Palestinian identity and our Palestinianness, or if during the path of our, of our peace process, me and you or in our activism, if we are led to anything that is erasing our ancestry, erasing our trauma, erasing our pain and our identity, um, then yeah, that is a negative way of presenting normalization. Um, the if the Abraham Accords are normalization accords and ties that normalize with ties with Israel, why simultaneously normalizing the occupation of the Palestinian people? Then yeah, no, that shouldn't be the case. Normalization should be um, presenting a dual narrative. That's what normalization should be. But because of the negative connotation, even in Arabic, tatbir, it's uh, it's seen as negative. Um, so that's why I don't like it. I think it shouldn't be called normalization because of what people think about it. I think we should like, f like we need um, to bring a new term. Yeah, a new maybe. term about it. Um, we'll think of one for next episode. We'll, we we'll promise. think of one. Ibrahim will come up with one for sure. <laughs> because I agree with you. Uh, my problem with the term is how it's used. Yeah, and it is a weapon used by people who are who don't want not even like the aspect of normalization and you know it's not only people who don't want to normalize the occupation it's also in my opinion it's also been used by people who refuse peace mm -hmm. and then they put everyone who works towards the peace as traitors of the community yeah. by using the term Tatbir, uh, normalization, and all these uh, collaborator, all these negative, uh, you know, terms that could be used against someone to put them as someone who's actually working against their community. Yeah, which is completely the opposite of what we're trying to do. We're trying to find ways to better the lives of our own people without and while being very, you know, uh, upfront about our identity, about our Palestinian identity, and as well about our Israeli one, mm -hmm. because it's part of how we. Uh, we're raised and we're not eliminating any parts of who we are. And that shouldn't be, um, what's the term? It shouldn't be judged in that yeah. way. But unfortunately it is. It and is. you know, we're just gonna need to battle on regardless of these people who say it. Because me and you, we know in our hearts that what we're doing is for the benefit of our people. And when we say our people, we mean Israelis, Israelis and, and Palestinians. Palestinians. Both of them are our people. people. If some people who will stand in the way and will try to put us in a negative, uh, you know, negative place in order to 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 portray us as as traitors of one community or or the other, we won't let those people uh, silence us because that's what they're trying to do. Mm -hmm. These terms are used to silence these kind of voices, and we're becoming unapologetic. So I'm sorry, no, you're not going to silence <laughs> us, and we will continue to work for the best things that we can in order to improve our people's lives. Talking about normalization, usually the force that comes either waving the accusation, the flag, accusational flag of normalization are people who boycott. Um, so I think we're going to end this uh, this episode by talking a little bit about, about boycotting. Um, what do you think about boycotting? I know we, we don't align on we, this view. We don't align because, uh, you know, it's it's a it's a legitimate tool. It's something that people do use uh, in order to provide economic pressure. I just think that the problem of you know everything in general there is sen uh, sensationalism. So when you start by, for instance, by boycotting on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, for instance, if you start with boycotting only businesses that are working in the settlements. But then it drags to everything else to boycott. You know what I mean? It doesn't end with only boycotting a specific thing. I think I think let's let's specify a few a few things. There's boycotting boycotting settlement products. There's boycotting Israel and not coming to visit Israel and boycotting any um, um, relations to to Israel. There's boycotting uh, institutions and organizations that fund the Israeli military. There's um, boycotting Israelis. So if you ask me, I think, like you said, I think boycotting is a legit, um, uh, and we see time and time again, it's a legit um, 
effective way of peaceful resistance. And I can't be that someone that advocates for peace and peaceful a peaceful resolution. I can't tell someone that they can't boycott. I think that it's an extremely peaceful and effective way that they that they can use. I'd much rather someone boycott than do something harmful. Um, um, uh, but if it becomes, if it drags to a point where you're boycotting dialogue, where you're boycotting, you're removing yourself from a room where your voice might make a difference, that's where I make my own personal decision where I, I have another route where I can be effective. I don't boycott, but I'm not against boycotting. Mm -hmm. I do boycott the the settlements. I do boycott the um, uh, things that I can within the state of Israel. The things that I can that would that would help. I try to buy from from like from uh, local local, uh, local Palestinian uh, shops whenever I can. But um, I won't boycott a conversation. There are many people that because an ex military person is in a room, which is basically all of Israel. Um, don't enter the room. Don't start the conversation. Um, I think that I don't agree with that. I think that's you preventing people from hearing your voice. Mm -hmm. um, and if it turns to a point where we are boycotting Jews, then that's where we cross the line. Like if it's like Israel equals Jews equals boycotting all Jews. Again, I can't tell you not to go to a specific place um, or not to listen. Like, please listen to a specific person like singer if it's culture and art um but like there has to be lines and the thing that you hate also is when boycotts are enforced on people it's like you have to boycott and and the problem is that the lines are invisible lines in the sand yeah that's my problem is that what you're saying is all great but in the reality what i see is that it always stretches beyond it's never unfortunately it's never oh okay i'm just going to boycott the israeli settlement but what products what about what about with russia and not other things about the 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 um the population you know like we start with the settlements and then it becomes to the the state of israel and then becomes israelis mm -hmm. and then it drags to boycotting jews that's my problem, yeah. that it starts with one thing and ends to the other. The other side of the problem that I see is that when it hurts, especially on the Israeli-Palestinian context, uh, more than Russia, I guess, is how boycott can actually hurt your, the, the people that you're supporting. Mm -hmm. And that comes out of ignorance and not understanding the yeah, conflict yeah, enough. Yeah. I remember we had a few years back the Eurovision, uh, the competition between the, the, European, uh, between the countries, uh, um, you know, uh, for the best perform uh, singing performance. And the, the, the country that wins hosts the next year's uh, event. So uh, uh, one Israeli singer uh, won. Um, and then the next year they had it in Israel. I think it was 2018 or 19, if I'm not mistaken. And people were starting to talk about boycotting their vision. And in the same time, in the same time that I was seeing posts and uh, calls to boycott the, the Eurovision that year, don't come to Israel and all these things. In the same time, on Channel 13, Israeli channel, I saw uh, a piece about how the hotels in Ramallah and Beit Lahem yeah. are preparing for the Eurovision because they're aware that there are not enough hotel rooms in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv. And there are people that want to boycott Israeli and, and want to stay. And it's, also it's cheaper, cheaper. Yeah. And it's cheaper. And there's not enough room. So guess what? The Palestinian hotels did not put someone in the security at the entrance asking if people came to the Eurovision or not. And if they're coming to the Eurovision, they're not coming into the hotel. No, they didn't. They're welcoming people. They need goddamn economy. They need to improve their situation economically. They mm -hmm. want to provide mm -hmm. jobs for the workers. And when you're boycotting, the, the first ones who are getting hurt by it are Palestinians. That's, that's where my problem yeah, yeah. lies. And sometimes it's musicians that want to, that want to perform in Haifa. And then like, like uh, organizations that promote, uh, that promote normalization are like, boycott this, boycott that. They're going to an Arab community, like a Palestinian community. I think it's not thought through well enough. And of course, there's ulterior motives behind it as it always is. You know, similar thing was happened with uh, SodaStream. And that's a company inside the, the West Bank. Yeah. Uh, it was a business that it's in the settlement community. And because of the, so it was boycotted 
because of the fact that it was inside a, a settlement area, the business moved out of the, the settlements. It moved out of the West Bank uh, because of all the boycott. But guess what? 90% of the workers were Palestinians. In the I don't factory. know how I feel about that. But it's true. I don't know how I feel about that because it's normalizing settlements. I don't think like... I know. I, I agree on the outside. But as the Palestinian family itself. True. They true. needed the income. They did not care about settlements. Ask every settlement in the West Bank, who, who built your it? house? It's Palestinians. Hello, I'm bringing you like a news flash. It's Palestinians who built yeah, their yeah, settlements. Yeah. Like, you know, people don't like delve too deep into these complexities, but these are part of the complexities. People it's need to live. They need, need to job. live. It's also taken advantage of because it's cheap for foreign, cheap labor. Cheap labor. And so... With all these things together, everybody wins. The Palestinian is looking for, for, for a job, looking for, for, for money to provide his, his kids, his wife, his family. That's his number one priority. And if he was able to do that in a, in a, in a factory in the settlements, we'll do it. Mm -hmm. It's better than not having a job. It's not a great option, obviously. I wish we had factories in the West Bank that are you know, by the Palestinian Authority, but we talked enough about how yeah, the Palestinian yeah. Authority, what it does... With the, with, the, with, the, with the support that it gets. So it's very complicated. It's not a black and white scenario with the boycott. That's, I think that's the one thing that I, we can take out of it. It's, it's, it's very complicated. Mm -hmm. You know, you have family, Palestinian families who are, who are getting um, uh, 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 like uh, benefit from the fact that there's a, 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 a factory in the West Bank. Mm -hmm. um, so it's very, you know, reverse kind of perception. So it's like... I don't know. It's always been very difficult for me to wrap my head around, especially when you look at the details. And again, ask the, the person who worked there yeah. whether or not he supports it. My family inside of inside of East Jerusalem, like from Sheikh Jarrah, we would when it was like wartime or when something would happen, we would like feel inside of Israel. It's sometimes extremely difficult to to boycott um, because it's not a one hundred percent thing. Like you say that you're boycotting, but at the same time you pay taxes. At the same time you do this. Like you literally pay for the army, and uh, like you like it's it's kind of like weird to think about. But you do what you can. Um, so, um, well, let's end this. I'm going to end this with a cute story. Um, so while I was in London, I was invited to the 70th, uh, anniversary of, uh, of Iraqi synagogue. And I was like, I thought a little bit about it. I was like, should I be boy? Should I be seen at one of these? Should I, should I go? Should I not go? And then I was like, no, I don't, I don't like, Again, I'm not against boycotting, but I don't I like I don't boycott people. I don't boycott. And it's a, a synagogue. Yeah. It's not a political entity. I saw that like during amidst these current situations, synagogue Jewish Israeli, they're it's going to be brought up. Like they're going to bring out the war. I'm going to be the only not only non-Jew, I'm going to be the Palestinian in the room. Oh, I see what you mean. Um so I went there and I was like, "No, I think I should be there. I think I should go." And I went. I didn't go by myself. Like I, I had a friend with me, and I went. And there was a mix up with tables, like it was not enough room. So they put us like in the back with this like religious group of old people. And we we sit and um, I was like, I didn't know who, who like would, like I don't have the word Palestinian on my forehead. I didn't know who was gonna, so I like just went with the flow. So I sat down and apparently, uh, I, I, again, I didn't know if they knew that I was Palestinian or not. So the first, the person next to me asked me uh, in Hebrew, like, do you know Hebrew? And I was like, yes. And he was like, where did you come from? Israel? And I was like, technically, yes, I did come from Israel. <laughs> like I came, I came from Ben Gurion Airport. Um, and I, I felt like really stressed out and watched the entire time. Like they were seeing when I was clapping because there was like, they were talking about the IDF and there was like conversation. They were seeing when I was clapping, when I was like uh, drinking my water and stuff. And then there was a talk about the hostages. And they had they had small electronic candles on the tables, which I thought was absolutely beautiful. Um, and there wasn't enough because me and my friend were added to the table. So I wanted to respect their their presence and I and I like put the the candle that was in front of me in between me and the person next to me, which was also an old Jewish man. Um, and I told him like, you can take it. it's it's all yours. And he took it and like during the song and the prayer, he lifted it up and in the middle he gave it to me and he told me for your people. 
And wow. then I took that and I was like, this is so powerful. But then I looked at him and I told him, they're not my people, they're people. They're our people. And then we lifted it together. It was very symbolic. It was very nice. It's beautiful. Um, so these kind of things are, and then it continued and I heard Arabic songs. I was like, this is my first time. I've never been in a in a, in a a Jewish wedding, like a, a, like a Mizrahi a Jewish wedding, a Middle Eastern Jewish wedding or celebration. And they had the same the same songs we put on, the oh, same yeah. dances, the same, like the same things. Um, and I felt, I felt like I'm so happy that I didn't, that I went. I'm so happy that my perspective like was there. I was after that. We had a long, like long conversations about things. Um, and to show my perspective, to show the similarity between being Palestinian, being Arab and the cult, the similar culture, um, a, again, I can't tell any, like I can't force anyone to not boycott or to boycott, but I can show what you're missing out on bringing to the table when you do boycott certain things. Um, and I think that we can end it this way, no? Yeah. yeah, that's what I feel is missing when you boycott is you're missing the opportunity to learn and to um, absorb from someone else. And this is the goal of the podcast. So for me, no boycotts, please. <laughs> I'm kidding. But uh, for me, do what you can to help the situation. Yeah. And I but guess make sure it helps. The last thing question that we had from one person is how can we do to help? Yeah. The people sitting in the West? Um, well, you can start by spreading this podcast. The third narrative. Anything you see that aligns with the third narrative, push it. Exactly. Anything that's not only our podcast, anything that has to do with ending this conflict, ending this uh, misery for both of our people, we are all for it. So we need your voice and all our voices need to be amplified because guess what? So far, the, the, the voices that are calling for hate are louder. Guys, it's our duty to make sure that our voice is louder than theirs. To spread hope, to spread... Um the need for um, for togetherness uh, have have a have an open an open mind uh, a listening ear uh, these are simple things that you can do uh, and make sure what you're posting even if it's factful make sure it's not written in a hateful way yep and as we always say uh, remember that at the end of the day all of us Israelis and Palestinians Arabs and Jews all of us deserve, deserve better, better.